this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, and the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time of anointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you, enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the Feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits 
of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, this morning we're going to continue our exposition through Exodus, and it's uh, taken us quite a bit of time. It's taken us nearly three years now, I think we're in Exodus, over 60 sermons. But if you followed along through the book, we have encountered over and over again the main idea, the theme of Exodus. It is that God is a God who makes himself known. Uh, the book of Exodus is not about redemption. It is not about slavery and oppression and freedom. It is, a, it is a book about God who makes himself known. And in our passage this morning, we have the longest and most complete description of God's character found in the Old Testament. And what's more, this explanation that we hear does not come from a pronouncement from an angel does not come from the words of a prophet. His character is pronounced by God himself. He discloses himself about what he is like and who he is. That's the main idea of our sermon this morning. It's really about who God is. Now, I know some of you right now are maybe thinking, this is a good sermon that I can check out. This is a good sermon because I, I know a lot already about God, and what I need right now is not necessarily a sermon to, to know God more, perhaps, but how to make friends. I need something more practical. I need some, some uh, instructions on how to get through school or how to raise my children, how to get my finances right. Whatever you have going on in your life, and I know some of you have deep pains and struggles that you're working through right now. There's nothing you need to know more than to know God, to know this God and what he's like. Certainly, you need many things. Some of you need a friend to come alongside you. Some of you just need the prayers of the saints, a meal perhaps, healing perhaps. But you need to know this God more than anything else. J.I. Packer is spot on when he says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So I asked some of you this morning, when you think about God, what do you think about? Because it will affect everything about you. And so the burden of my heart this morning, and I think 
the burden of this passage this morning is that we might know God as he truly is and that we might respond in worship to him. That we might know God as he truly is and respond in worship to him. Now you'll remember where we are in the book of Exodus. A couple chapters ago, uh, back in chapter 24, God made a covenant with Israel. Israel stood there and said, everything that God says, we will do. But no sooner had they made the covenant that the people played the harlot. And they broke covenant with God. They worship a golden calf. And that resulted not only in terrible consequences, but a broken relationship with God. But all through this episode that we've seen in chapters 32 through 34, Moses has interceded. And we left off last week with Moses asking God, be with us. And also he asked God, let me see your glory. And God answers those two things in our passage this morning. First, we see that God reveals his character. And second, we see God renews the covenant. And that's going to serve as our outline this morning as we work through chapter 34. We see God's character revealed in verses 1 through 7 and God's covenant renewed in verses 8 through 28. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 7 here. We see God's character revealed. Now, we see in these opening verses that God calls Moses to cut for himself two tablets of stone because why? The previous ones were broken as a symbol that they had broken the covenant. And we get an idea here all of a sudden that God is saying, I'm going to renew a covenant with you. I'm going to come back into covenant with Israel. Cut two new tablets of stone. We're going to have a do-over. I'm going to restore that covenant that I had with you at first. And so much of the instructions that we see early on in chapter 34 are the same that we saw earlier in Exodus chapter 19. So just like the first time, Moses needs to rise up early in the morning and ascend the mountain. Just like the first time, you're not to have any people nearby the mountain or animals near the mountain, otherwise they will be struck down because of the holiness of God. Just like the first time, God is going to make terms with, 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 the people, with his people. He's going to write them on tablets of stone. And just like the first time, as it says in, in verse 28 of our chapter, on those tablets are going to be written the Ten Commandments. God is going to reinstate his covenant with his people, but unlike the first time when Moses ascended the mountain, this time God reveals himself to Moses. Look at verses 6 and 7. It is difficult to overestimate the importance of verses 6 and 7. This here is the fullest revelation of God in a book that is all about God making himself known. God has already revealed himself in many ways. He's revealed himself in the burning bush, in the plagues of Egypt, in the Ten Commandments. But this here is the fullest declaration of who God is by his own words. And what's more, these verses make its way throughout the Old Testament. Aren't these verses verses that we memorize? They are indispensable throughout the Bible. It holds together the Old Testament. You know, later in Numbers, when Moses 
pleads to God because Israel's refusing to enter into the promised land. In the book of Numbers, what does he plead? He pleads Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The prophet Joel, in calling Israel to repent, gives Israel assurance by saying, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You know, the prophet Jonah quotes this. But he quotes it in a strange way because the prophet Jonah, he, you know, he, if you know the prophet, if you know that story of Jonah, he's upset with God. He's upset that God has brought salvation to the Ninevites. And you know what he says to God? He says, I knew it. I knew this about you because you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He quotes this passage. Say, I knew this about you. Over and over, you see in the Old Testament, you're going to find it in Nehemiah, you're going to find it in Chronicles, you're going to find it in the Psalms, minor prophets, major prophets. It's all over the Old Testament. In other words, you can't understand the God of the Bible if you don't understand what God says about himself here. You know, it would be trying to understand what the United States is about as a nation without knowing what the Declaration of Independence says. It would be trying to understand uh, the movie Barbie without knowing that Barbie is a, a fashion toy for kids. And if we want to know about God, we must look at this passage because we need to know God as he wants us to know him. And in verse 6, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, the Lord, the Lord. He repeats the divine name, Yahweh. We can't be exactly sure how God said this. Did he say it in a stately and royal way? Did he say, the Lord, the Lord? Or did he say it in a tender way? The Lord, the Lord. Given the context of how God describes himself, I tend to think that it's about tenderness and endearment. When a name is repeated in the Bible, oftentimes it's with great pathos, great emotion. Like when God calls Moses, Moses, Moses. Or when Jesus calls out to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or even Jesus himself when he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. And I think this is God speaking with intimacy, reminding and assuring Moses, reassuring Moses. And what is this description? Let's read it. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These words God uses to describe himself may come as a surprise to you. They might not have been the ones you picked if you were to describe what God is like. Maybe some of you would have said, the Lord, just and holy, quick to anger, slow to forgive. But that's not how God begins. You know, sometimes we are conditioned to remember only the angular descriptions of God, pictures of God punishing or exiling or this wine press 
treading the grapes of his winepress. And this is true for many of us in this church. And it is because we have a limited exposure to the true God of the Old Testament. But the truth about God from the earliest pages of Scripture, his first impulse and his first self-description is mercy, grace, love, faithfulness, forgiving. And we forget this because those difficult, passage, those difficult script, uh, passages in Scripture sometimes are so shocking to our minds that that's all we remember. Uh, you know how it is. We seem to only remember the bad things and never the good, th good, good things. I mean, if I had to ask my children, what has it been like living in the Chen household? They would say, well, Dad is always yelling after us to clean up after ourselves. And Mom, Mom never laughs. <laughs> she always gives me math homework. But do they remember the vacations? Do they remember the times in which birthday parties were held? Do they remember the evenings that they played board games with them, even if they didn't want to? <laughs> so we ought to be very careful about how we think about God. And we ought to look very carefully at his self-disclosure in verses 6 and 7. First, he's merciful. It's a word of sympathy. It, mean, it means God cares about his, our situation. He's not aloof. God's not the type of God that's like, eh, whatever. He's sympathetic with our weaknesses. He's tender and kind and gentle. He's never harsh. He's never petty. He's never cruel. Second, he's gracious. He treats us better than we deserve. That's true for everybody. And then he's slow to anger. This is what we see. He's, there's a vivid, this is a vivid way of describing God's patience. The, uh, the King James uses the word long-suffering. And the word here is literally expressed in the Hebrew as God having a long nose. Did you know that God has a long nose? The Hebrew has this idea that, man, he can, he can take a long inhale and not be angry. He doesn't have a short fuse. He's not rash. He's not like those short-nosed pigs that always seem angry all the time and who snort and growl and are grumpy. Not God. He is long of nose. Fourth, God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, the word here in Hebrew is the, for love is that word chesed. Some of you might know it. Sometimes translated as loving kindness. It refers to God's commitment to his covenant people. You know, sometimes people ask, uh, God, doesn't does he love everyone? And it's true, we are all, everyone in this world is God's children. But that's not how the Bible speaks of God's love. There is a sense in which God loves everyone because they are made in his image. But this is a covenant love referred to here. This covenant faithfulness. This is God saying, I don't hold back any of my promises to those that I love. I am steadfast and loyal and boundless to my people. You know, it's the difference between how you love every child and how you love your own. Uh, you know, if you're at my house and if I'm at my house and I hear a child crying upstairs, I run upstairs and I see 
and I run up there and I get there and I notice it's not my child. Now, I don't go up to that child and say, eh, whatever, you know, tough nuggies. I don't say that. I have compassion. I care for them. But it's different when you rush into the room and you see that it's your own child. And that is the way God sets his love on his people. It's a special covenant love. He's, we're kind of like his crying infants that he wants to console and comfort and love. And fifth, God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you see that there? He's piling up all these words about sin. God is saying there's no sin that I will not forgive. There are no categories of misdeeds or guilt or all the ways you have broken my law with all your sins that I will not forgive. That is who God is, a merciful, gracious, patient, loving, and forgiving. We've seen this in Exodus over and over again. Exodus, the people cry out for deliverance and God comes and saves. They cry for deliverance so many times. They cry for water and God provides. And even now, despite the, the horrific sin that they have done with worshiping a golden calf, God is being merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving to his people. You see, God's love is deep enough to submerge all our most, our most heinous sins for everyone who will repent. God's love is high enough to cover the most towering acts of rebellion that we might have against him. It is wide enough to embrace everyone who would come and turn to him no matter how deep their sins really are. Amen? This is a wonderful God that we have. And yet God's self-description doesn't end there. Sometimes we almost wish it had. But in verse 7, he says, but who will by, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What's God saying here? He says, in other words, the consequences of sin will come upon everyone who forsakes me. I am just. What is God saying here? How can he say something like this? I'll forgive sin, any, all these transgressions. And I will not forgive sin. How can he say both things? Those are polar opposites, aren't they? So many of us have a one-dimensional kind of cartoonish way of thinking about God. Some of us, when we think about God, we think of him maybe perhaps like a dog. I'm just so happy to see you. This is how dogs are, right? I love everything about you. You never upset me. You are my master. And some of us think of God like a cat. Please me. Fear me. Serve me, and maybe I'll give you some attention. But that's not God. He is gracious, loving, and forgiving, yet just. But how can this be? How can God be all these things? How can God overlook the sin of Israel without making good on his promise to judge sin? How can God possibly do something like that? 
How does he forgive rebellious and wicked people and still be just? And this riddle is in this Old Testament, and it plays throughout the Old Testament, and it is never really solved until you get to Jesus Christ. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to your, in your Bibles to the New Testament in Romans 3, to Romans 3.23, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans chapter 3. These are familiar verses to some of us, but it's worth, for us, worth it for us to look at it. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. God does not clear the guilty. That's what Romans 3.23 says. He does not wink at any of your sins or shrug his shoulders at any of our rebellion. It has all, it must all be paid for. And it is at the cross that this justice and this forgiveness meets, this mercy meets. Because God will be just and justifier. Do you know this God? I wonder if some of you know this God. Maybe you've been exploring Christianity for some time, but have you gotten to know this God? Will you come and ask God, God, show me who you are? Because God has revealed himself in the scriptures, and he has revealed himself in the word, and God reveals himself most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. God is both powerful and personal, and he takes sin more seriously than you could ever imagine. And he can remove it farther than you ever thought possible. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, today is a day of mercy and grace. And God has been patient with you, but that patience is not forever. While it is still today, Come to know this God, this God who will forgive all your sins in Christ. Brothers and sisters, take heart. I know some of you are going through a variety of things. Maybe not much, but some of you perhaps are downcast. And some of you feel the weight and the consequences of your sin in grievous ways. Some of you feel hopeless, maybe discouraged. You might feel that you're beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, but if you're in Christ, let God's self-revelation sink in. There is no bottom to his mercy for you, as we have just sung. His mercy is more. Jesus is full of compassion right there with you. If you're guilty, if you feel guilty going to bed, I don't know if that's the kind of person you are or you feel guilty when you wake up in the morning, maybe that's some of you. Jesus is gracious and forgiving and you need to hear that. He redeems you from that. He lifts the guilt off of you. He is not angry with you 
forever slightly just disappointed in you. No, he loves you. If we can get a handle on that emotionally and look to Christ and see with fresh eyes his mercy and grace and patience and love and forgiveness, then maybe it will make all the difference when we go to bed at night or when we wake in the morning. All right, verses 1 through 7, we see God's character revealed. Uh, we, this second part, I promise, will be a little bit shorter. We look at verses 8 through 28 as we see God's covenant renewed. Verses 8 through 28, we see God's covenant renewed. Verse 9, God says, will you go with us? And finally, we get a firm answer, God will go with Israel. Verse 10, God says, behold, I am making a new covenant. Oh, not a new covenant. I'm making a covenant, not a new one, but a restoration of the old one. And God displays his character as he tells Israel, I will do wonders for you. I will do marvels before all these nations that no one has ever seen before, and you will be my instruments, and you will be my precious ones. God's going to split the river Jordan for them. God's going to make those walls of Jericho come tumbling down. God is going to make sure that as they go through the wilderness, the shoes on their feet and the clothes on their back will not wear out. God is going to lavish his goodness upon his people. Now, beginning in, verses, in verse 11 and all the way down to verse 28, God proceeds to give them a series of commands. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. And if you've been here for the other parts of our series through Exodus, some of this is going to sound very, very familiar to you because some of it is verbatim from Exodus chapter 23. So if you remember, God, back in Exodus 20, gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he also gives them the Book of the Covenant. He gave them all these uh, case laws. Uh, case laws about altars and slaves and restitution and social justice and festivals and, and laws there to keep in Canaan. It's called the Book of the Covenant. Now here in chapter 34, we see a sampling of those exact same laws. And it's a way of God telling Israel, we're getting a do-over. We're redoing the covenant. We're back in the covenant together. Now, upon first glance, these stipulations in chapter 34 might seem a little haphazard, as if God was like, oh, all the way back in chapter 23, uh, what are some ones that we should be thinking of, um, keeping the festivals, keeping the Sabbath, and then, oh, yeah, remember that one about boiling a goat in its mother's milk? But upon closer inspection, these commandments all have to do with worshiping and trusting God. Worshiping and trusting God alone. Why? Because of the context. Exodus 32 has happened. Because they worshipped a golden calf. Because they had broken covenant with them. So in light of this betrayal with the golden calf, God samples certain laws concerning worship that Israel might remain faithful to him. I mean, the whole law about boiling a goat in its mother's milk is about Devotion to the Lord. It's about not falling into Canaanite practices. So first in verses 11 through 17, God reminds them that they are in 
an exclusive relationship. Moses says, don't make a covenant with inhabitants of land. Don't do that. Why? You're in covenant with me. Don't have anything to do with the gods in the land because you shall have no other gods before me. Don't prostitute yourself or cause others to whore after false gods. Now, why does God speak in such stark terms? Because he's in a relationship with his people. The covenant is a relationship. He relates to them as a husband to a wife. So verse 14, he says, I'm a jealous God. My name is Jealous. I refuse to come in second place in your life. And this doesn't mean that God's insecure or petty. God's not, not like a jealous employer who fears that his employees might get lured away by a better job somewhere else. This is not the jealousy, a reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous for his own name to be honored and anything and everything that opposes the good of his faithful wife, he will oppose with divine omnipotent jealousy. And so God demands a single-minded worship of himself. This is what the tearing down of these pagan altars are all about. It's about having hearts for Yahweh alone. The reason for not making covenant with people, with others, is to escape the snare of divided loyalties because God is holy and he has a jealous love for his people. It's as though God said to Israel, don't make dates with other men. Don't keep the pictures of your old boyfriend on your nightstand lest they become a snare for you and draw your heart away from me. But not only is it an exclusive relationship, we see that it's a responsive relationship. In verse 18 to the end, God lists a series of positive actions that they're to take that should characterize Israel as being in a covenant relationship with God. And so they're to maintain a regular pattern of worship. Annually, they're to, to do these three feasts, right? The feast of, uh, these three feasts that are listed here are talking about separation from sin. They're talking about a relationship with God. They're talking about God's provision in their lives. That's what these festivals were all about. In addition, there's an annual, beyond the annual pattern for worship, Israel's reminded to have a weekly pattern of worship. Keep the Sabbath. That is the way that we remain in relationship together. Continue to keep the Sabbath. Lastly, he calls on his people to offer their best from livestock to their children. They're to show that everything from their dearest possessions, their livestock, to their dearest relationships, all those things belong to him. God is a God of mercy and grace. He redeems them, forgives them. And now he calls on his people to put away their idols to trust him and live righteous lives that display the weight and worth of God. Now let me ask you a question. Does that second point sound like good news to you? I think there's a lot of people for whom the first is good news and the second is bad news. Here's what I mean. By the first I mean God's character. He is a God of grace and love and he forgives sin. Ultimately, God's mercy and justice meet at the cross of Christ. And because of Christ, God has lifted our sins off of us. Your guilt is no more. His covenant love is a love that cannot be fathomed. It is always for you. And I think a lot of people exult in that and say, yes, 
That's the way I live my life. That is the gospel to me. That is my only hope. That's the way I live. But then you get to the second point of this message and this text, and God says, now do something. Namely, worship me. Deny yourself. By the way you live your life, you should display that I am your greatest treasure. Consider all the ways you're tempted to align yourself with this world. Consider all the ways you're tempted to make allegiances with this world apart from me. And you know what? God says, tear them down. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't even flirt with it. Delight in me alone. And it feels like the gospel of mercy and grace on one hand is taken away by the second point. So let me ask you this question. Would it be really good news to you if you heard God say to you this morning, I hereby lift from everyone in this room the everlasting guilt of their sin you have ever done and ever will do and I will never ask you to put away any of your idols. Now, if that sounds like good news, you know what that means? It means that you love your idol and not God. That money or that status or that relationship, yourself, you love that more than God. If God says, I'll forgive you and take away from you punishment, but I won't ask you to do away with your obsession with sin. And you say, oh, good. That way I can be forgiven. There's no more punishment, and I can live like any way I want to live. It just documents where your heart is. And I find that for many of us, the call for total allegiance to Christ is a burden. And it's because there are lurking love affairs with our idols. Church, these laws with festivals and Sabbath and giving our all are not regulations we need to keep. They have been fulfilled in Christ. But the good news of the gospel is not only that we are forgiven, that God is for us. It is not only that we are dead to sin, but that we are alive to God. Amen. You get the merciful and gracious and patient and loving and faithful God who forgives all your sins, you get God. And I hate that, you know, John Piper is just able to make these, you know, pithy statements so impactful, you know, whatever it is. He says, God is the gospel. And that's right. God is the gospel. He is the end. You get a relationship with the faithful, almighty God, not like these counterfeit gods that are out there that inevitably fail. So church, God has made himself known to us, and God himself is the best thing for us. Amen. Amen. May we be like Moses, who could not help but bow his head in worship, and may we respond in obedience, walking in covenant love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for how, for who you are. Oh, Lord, so much mercy, so much grace has been afforded to us 
We see it every morning. So, Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that would lean in and trust you more and more. Oh, Lord, open our eyes when we read scriptures that we might see the beauty of Christ and draw ever near to him. To trust you when times are hard and difficult. To rejoice in you when things are going well. And Lord, may this mean that we have such a vision for Christ that we would do away with any inferior loves. And to, that those things that you give to us in this world would have its proper place and orbit around you. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.